Welcome to today's discussion. Uh, my name is Glenn Deason, and with me today is Alexander Mercuris from the Duran and Jeffrey Sachs, a world-renowned and very influential economist who advised many countries around the world, including the uh, administration of Gorbachev and Yeltsin. Uh, welcome, Professor Sachs. Oh, great to be with you, Glenn and Alexander, both of you. So, uh, so our topic today, uh, we wanted to focus on two, maybe a bit too wide topics. Uh, the first will be then, what are the main economic changes in the world? So as an economist, perhaps you can shed some light. So we see from this election in Argentina, we see Iran uh, deepening its economic ties with Russia now with this free trade agreement, but also linking itself to China. Um, we see the wider Eurasian integration. Uh, we see now Russia's uh, economic return to the Middle East, as we also in Saudi Arabia and UAE. This is a uh, yeah, quite uh, putting on a bit of a spectacular show, but and if we have time, uh, of course, we'd like to have to look also at some of the solutions, if it's possible, to some of the economic and political challenges today, mm -hmm. such as the the sustainability of U.S. debt and the uh, you know the the stability of the dollar, which I guess uh, while many would like to see it had a lower or more weaker status in the world, uh, collapse would be horrible probably for <laughs> everyone. So, but uh, yeah, if you don't mind, I thought we could start with Argentina because for me, this case is very strange. Uh, a hard time making sense of it. Obviously, Argentina has a lot of problem with inflation and other economic problems. So I can understand the appetite for radical reforms, but uh, the election of uh, Javier uh, Millet is very radical, I think, even radical for uh, Friedrich Hayek and uh, Milton Friedman. So uh, how do you interpret this? Like, why has Argentina had so many economic problems to begin with and what do you make of his solutions? Are they accurate uh, uh, solution to this problem? The story of Argentina goes back uh, two centuries. <laughs> this is a very uh, uh, complicated place that has added more zeros uh, to uh, the price level than any other country in the world. Its uh, next door neighbor, Brazil, comes in second. So. Uh, Argentina, in the course of its two centuries of independence, has done everything you can do to money, period. <laughs> it's had new currencies, old currencies, uh, uh, depreciated currencies, hyperinflations repeatedly, defaults repeatedly. So it's a, kind of a, a mystery at some fundamental level why uh, such a uh, well-resourced uh, country, many, many educated people, a country that was one of the richest in the world a century ago, has been in so much tumult. And uh, when I was studying economics 50 years ago, as I began uh, my freshman year at university, uh, the great economic historian uh, of the day in uh, Harvard University was a, a man named Simon Kuznets who uh, invented to a substantial extent the national income accounts, the GDP and the other parts of the national income accounts, and he won the Nobel Prize for it. But he uh, may be apocryphally, but the story was that he opened the, his course each year saying there are four types of countries. There are the developed economies, there are the developing economies, 
there is Japan, and there is Argentina. Now, what that meant was uh, at the time, Japan was the miracle economy. We would say that maybe about China now. Uh, and Argentina already, this was 50 years ago, was the country constantly in crisis. So one of the things about crisis is that if you have had repeated financial crises, you are prone to having more of them because everybody is always on guard to get out of the national currency before it loses all value. So Argentina is a country of macroeconomists. The uh, taxi drivers, a macroeconomist, the storekeepers, a macroeconomist, they all have dollars and pesos. They're always ready. They're looking every moment. Will there be a political crisis? Will our currency lose value? And you end up with a lot of self-fulfilling catastrophes. A self-fulfilling catastrophe is when something bad happens because something bad is expected to happen. And if the currency is expected to lose value, then people flee the currency and drive down its value, thereby confirming the fear. And in certain circumstances uh, with fragile economies, and Argentina is the most classic case, that uh, fear becomes self-confirming on an ongoing basis. And I can tell you a story. I was trying to help not the previous finance minister, but the finance minister just before him, uh, a man named Martin Guzman, a professional, a very decent uh, man. And he was battling an inflation rate of 40 or 50 percent per year. And Argentina had a large debt, but actually not. I shouldn't even say that it, it had a relatively small debt. But since nobody trusts Argentina, no one would lend it new money. So as the old debt was coming due, a government would normally borrow new money to pay off the old money and keep the debt level pretty much the same. But Argentina has no friends. Nobody trusts it. So as the Argentine debt was coming due, everyone wanted to be repaid. Thank you. No more loans. So I was trying to help since uh, part of my work over the last 40 years has been in economic emergencies. And I helped them negotiate arrangements with their bank creditors. And I helped them negotiate arrangements with the International Monetary Fund. And I said, oh, God, this is tough. Nobody believes in Argentina, least of all the Argentines. So after these uh, agreements were reached, I flew to Buenos Aires and I met in a large room with Argentina's Pubas, the, uh, the powers and shakers. And I said, you know, your situation is not as bad as you think. Your debt is actually not so high. Uh, your uh, need for the central bank to print money is actually not so high. It's just that nobody trusts you. So if we could regain trust, believe me, you know, your balance sheet is actually better than the U.S. government. It's just that in the U.S., everybody uses the dollar so you could run big budget deficits. But Argentina's budget deficit was smaller than the U.S. and Argentina's uh, uh, inflation soared because everyone was always ready to run out of the peso. OK, so I said, just rebuild trust. I felt pretty good, compelling speech, showed the data, showed that the U.S. is worse at a fundamental level than uh, Argentina, flew home, 
And within days, the finance minister basically resigned because his own political party more or less disowned him after he had gotten these agreements. Oh, my God. Okay, he's gone. Inflation soars again. And so all that handiwork of saying, you know, there's a way to get out of this. Be careful. Went evaporated. And the inflation eventually rose to more than 100 percent per year, which is pretty high, although I've dealt with countries in thousands of percent per year. But it was sufficiently high that the Argentines said in this election, we don't want to hear anything about any standard politician. We want something completely new. And the incoming president uh, promised something completely new, specifically to adopt the dollar. And uh, it's probably not going to happen because quickly they backtrack. We don't even have dollars. We can't uh, tie uh, our future to a currency in which we have no reserves. We couldn't back the banking system and so forth. I've not spoken with the new government, although I know the incoming finance minister quite well. Um, I plan to speak with them. The, The long and the short of it is this is just chronic crisis. So I wouldn't draw too much uh, about general facts from Argentina, because basically almost any time between 1823 and 2023, you could have found the country in crisis. And I've dealt with already in my career uh, with a number of, of presidents of Argentina, and they don't have the the internal political capacity to overcome this yet. So all of this is to say uh, Argentina endlessly fascinating, a little bit bizarre. Uh, Hopefully they'll get out of it this time. What's interesting now geopolitically is that the outgoing government had joined the BRICS. uh, And that is a good thing uh, and an important thing for Argentina because it brings Argentina and the next door giant Brazil together, which is very good for South America, very important diplomatically, very important geopolitically. The incoming government has said, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with China because Malay is being portrayed as an ardent uh, Americanist. So on the American side of this block politics, my message to the Argentines is, look, China is your your major customer. Uh, Don't be dumb. Uh, Don't go with the U.S. in this sense. You know, trade with the U.S., trade with China. Don't get into this crazy mentality of one side or another. And by the way, in this world today, if you have to choose one side or another, I wouldn't go with the American side. Every time a country sides with the United States these days, it ends up in disaster like Ukraine because the U.S. is a fading uh, empire uh, it it can't sustain all its promises, not even close. It can't even keep its own public institutions functioning anymore. So my message to the Argentines is don't you don't have to choose sides. Just just be nice, but don't break relations with China, for heaven's sake. Join the BRICS. It's a good thing to do. And maybe within the BRICS efforts this year, which are very important efforts Mm. to create non-dollar payments, there'll be Mm. something in it for Argentina that I'm going to try to explain to them. Uh, There really is 
some good news for Argentina in the fact that it won't just be the dollar in the world, that there will be alternative payments. And Argentina shouldn't close itself off from what's going to be an important new force in in international monetary economics. Mm. That's all very interesting because one of the things that I noticed, which has not been mentioned, I think, widely, is that Putin, of course, has just been to the UAE and he's just been to the Saudi Arabia. And he came with a very, very big and very strong delegation of people. And I noticed that one of the people who was there was, of course, Nabulina, who is the central bank chair. And um, both Saudi Arabia... I didn't realize she was on, on yeah, the trip, but that is, a, that is a very yeah, interesting it very part. Interesting. You, uh, it, yeah. it was interesting because you, there was a... She was... You, the, I don't think it was announced, but there was a list of... You saw the picture of all the people in Riyadh, and they were all shaking hands, and one of the people who was there and who shook the hands was none other than Nabulina. So she was there. And, um, of course, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are both joining the BRICS in a few weeks. So is Iran. The new Iranian... The, the Iranian president has just been to Moscow. He's had discussions there with, with Putin, of There's just been this announcement of this free trade agreement. And then at the same time, Putin gave this speech at an investment forum run by VTP. And a disproportionate amount of that discussion was about the financial architecture. He was saying that, in fact, that that seemed to be the most important thing, that, you know, the the finance, you need to get the financial architecture right domestically in order to move forward. But he was also talking about the new financial architecture. And he said some very interesting things about how the existing financial architecture, which is Western-based, is becoming outdated and obsolescent, also in a technological sense. So you have Nabulina there in all of these meetings, and she's presumably talking about all of these matters. She seems to be very interested in them. And she's talking with a big oil producers. Iran is also a big oil producer. And at the same time, you have all these discussions from Putin about financial systems. And I wonder whether this adds up. Yeah, the the, the trip was absolutely fascinating, incredibly skillful of Putin uh, at this moment. And it, it reflects actually three major geopolitical points, all, I think, rather ingeniously brought together. One of them is uh, OPEC plus, of of course. Uh, OPEC plus Russia constitutes uh, an enormous part of the hydrocarbons uh, market uh, of the world, and they they do a lot of important business together in this in in managing uh, the uh, oil and gas market. So that's uh, one part of the trip. Uh, another part of the trip is clearly regional. Uh, which is the integration of Russia with Central Asia, uh, with the Arabian Peninsula, uh, with the the Middle East more generally. Uh, And you look at the map and uh, between Russia, China, Central Asia, uh, Arabia, uh, this is building. And of course, India is a member of of the BRICS. This is really building most of Eurasia uh, into an integrated geopolitical and economic uh, huge part of the world. And so very, very deft in that regard also. 
a basic principle of economics, a fundamental principle is neighbors should get along. They trade well with each other. Uh, they share ecosystems with each other. And that's the principle that Putin is following uh, because uh, Iran is a neighbor. Uh, the Middle East is a neighbor. This is very smart. And then the third dimension, in addition to the oil and the neighborhood, is, of course, the BRICS. And the BRICS uh, started out as the five Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It had already reached uh, a, uh, an output level measured at what we call purchasing power prices or at international prices larger than the G7. That is geopolitically and economically notable. But now the five are being joined by six more, presumably Argentina. That's uh, the new addition in, in uh, South America, uh, Egypt and Ethiopia in Africa and Saudi Arabia, uh, the Emirates uh, and, uh, and uh, Iran uh, in, uh, in, the, in the Middle East region. Now, you add the six to the original five, you have 37% of world output, according to the IMF uh, purchasing power uh, data, compared to 29 to 30% for the G7. <laughs> this is a different world. Uh, and and, uh, and this is really powerful. <clears throat> and what the BRICS are discussing uh, this year in particular is exactly this financial architecture. And of course, that was greatly hastened by the absolutely uh, awful and mistaken U.S. policies on the dollar. Uh, so the U.S. has what uh, Charles de Gaulle, already President de Gaulle, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, called the exorbitant privilege, uh, which is that the dollar is used uh, for about 60% of international transactions of all kinds. Uh, the way you denominate a contract, the way you pay to settle a contract, the way you uh, governments hold their foreign exchange reserves. So on all three major dimensions of international currency, the dollar predominates. Not exclusively, but uh, overwhelming. Uh, and uh, that gives the U.S. a huge advantage. You don't run out of the dollar to what? To the dollar. <laughs> and so it's not like Argentina where everyone's sitting on the edge as the U.S. debt reaches 100% of GDP. If Argentine debt ever came close to 100% of GDP, they'd be out the door in a moment. But with the U.S. being the currency of the world, Nobody flees the dollar. So that's the exorbitant privilege that you get to borrow. You can pump up the money supply. You get some inflation, but you don't get what Argentina or just about any other emerging economy would get. But the U.S. just couldn't leave good enough alone. It had to weaponize the dollar. And this has really been it's become an addiction. The U.S. generally is addicted to regime change. The U.S. generally is addicted to a foreign policy that says, I don't like you. I want to replace you. Uh, send in the CIA or send in an army. But we get to choose who your government is. Now, this is uh, absolutely disastrous foreign policy, in my view, uh, completely against the U.N. charter, completely against international law. But that's the core. And the U.S. figured out 10 or 15 years ago 
that it could use the dollar as a foreign policy weapon. And the main way that it uses it is in a very crude way, which is to say, one day, your dollars are now our dollars. Thank you. Your dollars means literally means you have accounts in U.S. banks or U.S. controlled banks. That's what a dollar is in, in effect, uh, M2 definition of a dollar. Um, so you're holding dollar accounts in institutions that we control. And what the U.S. has come to do increasingly frequently is freeze the money of other countries, of their central banks, no less of their state enterprises. And the United States did this with Venezuela. Absolutely absurd, but one day, Trump and his minions got the idea that they will declare who's the real president of Venezuela, not the actual president of Venezuela, but they named someone from the Venezuelan parliament as president and said, okay, that guy's president. That actually lasted for a few years and you could, see the power of the United States. It's like the emperor with no clothes. Uh, oh, about 40 countries said, oh, now Mr. Guaido is president, not Mr. Maduro, who's actually president. So you could see a measure of the U.S. influence uh, that other countries would follow this nonsense. But in the process, they said, Mr. Maduro's no longer president, because we said so, and he has no longer has access to the foreign exchange reserves of the country. We give that to this other one. Well, this is absolutely crazy. Even the IMF couldn't, I mean, not, I shouldn't say even the IMF, the IMF couldn't figure this out. It doesn't have the gumption to say to the United States, you know, that's ridiculous. So, oh, no, we have a big issue. Who really controls the foreign exchange reserves? So these games went on for years. Of course, with Russia, it's much more serious than that. The United States froze its estimated $300 billion of Russian financial assets. That's a lot of money, by the way. That's, that was the trick that was going to bring Russia to its knees. It didn't do so. But that's what they thought. You know, we've, we've got Putin cornered. We've got Russia cornered. We'll bring them to their knees by freezing their assets and locking them out of the U.S. banking system the so-called SWIFT settlement system. Well, Russia quickly figured out, very cleverly, we could trade with China and Redmond B, we could trade with India and rupees, a little bit shakier on that front. We can find other ways to transact. And to make a, a maybe a short story long as I have, <laughs> this year Russia is the leader of the BRICS. The BRICS summit will be in Kazan, next October, I believe it is. And so Russia chairs the process and it's chairing an expert group to come up with non-dollar payments. This is smart. <laughs> and I kept telling my friends in the U.S. government, don't abuse the dollar. It's going to go away. Who? Because in monetary economics, the first thing you teach is the real economy is the real thing, what you produce, what the factories are. There are many ways to make a settlement, even barter, of course, but there are many currencies you can use. So don't think that your currency brings another country to its knees because the other country's economy is the real economy, the ability to produce 
steel, the ability to produce weapons or artillery, the ability to produce automobiles or chips or whatever it is, or oil. And the United States misunderstood that, but really abused the privilege of the dollar. And the dollar will absolutely lose its role in centrality in the international payment system in the coming decade. You know, in monetary economics, just to, to mention, all my colleagues look at history and say it's a long, slow decline of a currency. And, and the most famous case is the British pound, which used to be the core of the international monetary and financial system in the 19th century until basically the Great Depression. But uh, the fact is, and so they say, look, the pound hung in there even after Germany was larger, even after the United States was larger, even after Britain's share of the world economy had declined, London remained the center of the international system. But it's not going to happen the same way with the dollar because it's just too easy technologically to do things differently. And so we will have at least an international renminbi at a minimum playing a big role. And we could have a kind of BRICS, a BRICS, uh, if not central bank, a BRICS monetary uh, Mm -hmm. fund uh, that uh, serves the role of giving liquidity and credits among the BRICS countries in a way which will mean a a non-dollar settlement system. Professor Sachs, just a few things. As a as a person in Britain, I can say that the long decline of sterling after Britain lost its uh, hegemonic position in the world economy was an absolute disaster for Britain. You yes. would not want to go through that process again. And um, by the way, it's quite interesting yeah. just to say the way it manifested. Of course, World War One was awful. Uh, the return to gold in 1926 overvalued Britain uh, in the world economy. And uh, Keynes wrote one of his most famous essays in 1926 called The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill, who happened to be the chancellor of the exchequer in 1926 that put this mistake into place. The 1930s were the Great Depression. World War II, of course, devastating. And the point is, by the end of World War II, Britain had basically gone deeply into debt, even with its own colonies, which became independent countries. And so Britain never quite got out of debtor status again. Uh, And it was a very, very heavy, long, painful period. Britain, the center of the world, going to the new International Monetary Fund for an emergency loan. I mean, unthinkable. But, you know, the United States, can you imagine going to the IMF for a loan? It's not impossible. This is exactly uh, what you're uh, what you're referring to. Absolutely. I remember it. I was I was in London, of course, when it happened. I can remember the chancellor turning back at the airport. And he had to rush off to Washington to raise funds. And of course, the fact that we had this currency, which was still an, an international currency, was doing immense damage to the British domestic economy, which I think people don't understand. So in some ways, it might actually be better for the United States, I would have thought, to go through it quickly than have it, you know, drawn out in the way that it was with Britain. I'm not, by the way, saying that's going to happen, yeah. and I'm not making those points. But anyway, that's that's what, that's what I wanted to say. But 
it's a long process. It's a long agony. It's not uh, based on the British experience. So, you know, we, we will have non-dollar payments in the BRICS. That's uh, clearly high on the mind, not only of President Putin, obviously, uh, but also President Lula, who every day asks, and he's the chair of the G20 this year, as well as being a, 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 a BRICS member. Why are we dealing with Russia in dollars, for heaven's sake? And he's very sensible, very logical. Uh, and uh, we will move to new payments arrangements and they will do just fine. Thank you. That will be the real lesson. What you were describing, oh, sorry. Well, what are you describing, though, is usually yeah, hegemon in decline. And one one of the key issues then, of course, will be once when you have a hegemon, which is secure in itself, usually it can facilitate a liberal economic system. The problem often is a hegemon in decline will often push towards a resumption to more or less mercantilism or more of this uh, using its administrative power of the international economy as a weapon, uh, which you pointed out quite nicely. Uh, but, but I was curious about what, what would be the main uh, challenges and opportunities with this new construct, because often, I guess, BRICS and all is almost presented as a as a, as a a block with this very Cold War mentality. But obviously, the members of BRICS, you know, bring from China, India, or, you know, now with Saudi Arabia, Iran, they don't, you know, their main uh, objective would be to solve cooperation between each other, not target an external adversary. Of course, if they can make it work together, uh, that would diminish the reliance on the U.S. Uh, uh, but but again, this is, um, it seems to be, well, what they have to negotiate now is everything from, you know, technologies and industries and banking and the uh, payment systems and uh, across the board. I'm just wondering, because, because these countries do have a lot of divisions between them, uh, well, what do you see as the main challenges? Because uh, many people assume that BRICS, for example, would have their own pursued a common currency. But I was recently speaking to the Indian ambassador and he was pointing, no, 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 that's not going to happen with us. But, you know, we will look for other, for example, payment systems in order for, uh, you know, diversify our the, the, the currencies we use. But yeah. I guess my, 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 my point is that well, what BRICS is forming is something different than what the U.S. facilitated, because under the U.S. system, everything was very centralized. Everything, you know, the key technologies, the industries, the currency, the banks, everything is U.S.-centric. But BRICS is something much more decentralized. I was just wondering, how do you see this thing moving forward? And what, what, what well, would look, be the know, challenges? The U.S. Uh, did aim to build a... Uh, uh, a, a global world, a globally interconnected world, but on the presumption that the U.S. would always be at the center of it uh, and the dominant power of it. But it meant that the U.S. was ready uh, at uh, a lot of times to take some responsibility and to uh, pay some costs uh, and uh, to take some what was true leadership open the markets for other countries before those other countries would open the markets to U.S. goods or actively share technologies or inventing foreign aid, which uh, was an anti-Soviet move, but it was real money given to other countries, which is not a usual, uh, usual behavior in the world. And the U.S. had the concept of uh, so-called trade rounds to uh, reduce uh, trade barriers, and then eventually to create WTO, which was a U.S. initiative, and so on. 
Now, the presumption of all of this was that a, an interconnected world would be good and the U.S. would sit on top of it. The mis I won't say it's a miscalculation. I would say the naivete of that view was, yeah, other countries are going to come along and the U.S. being 4.1% of the world population has no right to presume that it is the hegemon that gets to determine everything else. And lo and behold comes China with a population four times larger, more than four times larger, and extraordinarily skillful uh, governance uh, and uh, really remarkable uh, quality of planning and governance and uh, good judgment uh, with the reforms ushered in by Deng Xiaoping starting in 1978. The U.S. didn't see it coming, but China grew at around 10% per year. That means you double every seven years in aggregate size of the economy. That's fast. You do that for 35 years. That's five doublings. That's two times two times two times two times two. That's 32 time increase of the size of the economy. That's what China achieved. Suddenly, China's bigger than the United States, again, measured in international prices. Now, this is an incredible affront to the Americans. Not to me. I think it's great. You know, China is catching up. That's wonderful. That's uh, what economics is supposed to be all about. Is it a loss for the United States? Not in any real way at all. None of China's gains is a loss for the United States. None of it. It just expands world markets. We have uh, more productivity. We have new technology. We're able to buy a lot of goods and my uh, iPhone made in China and so forth uh, at low cost. It's good, but it's an affront to a mindset that says we run the show. And so starting 10 years ago, the United States uh, got it in its head that we got to stop this. It's crazy. How can you stop another country from achieving development? And how can you stop a country 1.4 billion people? But the United States does genius things. Like I said, the genius thing of saying, President Maduro's not president. It's the one we chose. It's nuts. Okay, so what did President Obama decide to do? He said, we're going to have a, a trade agreement with Asia that will not include China. Well, duh. China's the largest trade partner of half the world, and it's the largest trading economy in Asia by far. And the United States, in its absolute foolishness, even explicitly says, we need to make arrangements where we set the rules, the so-called rule-based order. Well, two things wrong with this. Uh, one, you can't have a trade arrangement in Asia without China. Are you kidding and second, we were supposed to make international rules at the World Trade Organization. That was the idea of it. But that means actually that China has a voice. And so this is where we are right now. We are a declining hegemonic power in the United States, which has lost its nerve, which is fighting. It thought it was kind of a, a walk, uh, at least into Ukraine, uh, with NATO and, you know, uh, a destroyed Russia, that was their idea. 
turned out to be a little bit naive to say the least. An ascendant China, a BRICS group larger than uh, than than the U.S. backed uh, G7 group, and it there is no hegemon anymore. But the U.S. fights a uh, a, a rear guard on this, and the mentality is unbelievably weird and out of date. Okay, Biden lives in the past, literally, maybe even more than we've realized. But in any event, all his tropes, uh, which uh, you guys talk about and I talk about of the indispensable nation and uh, and uh, U.S. leadership, well, the, the, those are uh, so outdated that they were even funny in the 1990s, but kind of believable because the Soviet Union had uh, disappeared suddenly in December 1991. But weird to hear now. The U.S. is the indispensable country. Sorry, not quite. Uh, the the fight in Ukraine is really the last battle of the expanding empire. I call it the Teutoburg Forest battle. That was when uh, the Roman Empire faced its limit finally on the Rhine because uh, Augustus uh, in 9 AD wanted to keep expanding and the Germans beat him. Uh, on the Rhine. So uh, Rome uh, never conquered Germania. By the way, Rome remained an empire for centuries. So it wasn't the end of the world not to have uh, Roman legions in Germania. And it will not be the end of the United States not to have NATO uh, forces uh, in Ukraine. But they think it is right now. So what we're seeing is a uh, a psyche that's wounded, uh, that is uh, still believing we run things, uh, that still so much wants to run things. Uh, we get, I assume you get your monthly copy of uh, Foreign Affairs uh, magazine. All it is, every issue is to try to cheer up the Americans that you're still number one. Every article is China in decline. Are we still the strongest? It's it's not even a scorecard that makes sense in in, in a world of cooperation and economics, but to these strategists that rank everything, this is their, their world. So we've gone to protectionism. We ignore the World Trade Organization. We break every international agreement. We're on the veto side of every UN Security Council resolution. We're on the defeated side of almost every UN General Assembly resolution. What kind of hegemon is that? Uh, it, it is a country that was in the lead that doesn't offer to other countries anymore, only threatens them. And you can't sustain your power only by threat. Anyway, the power doesn't even, it's evanescent in that sense when other countries have the same technologies you do. When we see that the NATO weaponry is no wonder weapons that defeats Putin from one day to the next, that Russia is very clever. They've got very sophisticated technologies. So this is why the whole idea of the hegemonic power is passe, but if you don't know it, it's really dangerous. And the U.S. doesn't recognize it yet. It hasn't changed its foreign policy appropriately. Mm. Professor Sachs, it's, uh, I, I was wondering if we could go back to the Middle East, because the Middle East is such an enigmatic region. I mean, we've had so many wars there. There's also, I think, a widespread view that it has never fulfilled its economic promise 
um, over since the Second World War. Um, the, and yet one senses that things are starting to change now. We see Saudi Arabia and Iran making friends, and you've pointed out how neighbors being friends is economically beneficial. We see very ambitious economic development plans in Saudi Arabia itself. We see Saudi Arabia and the Emirates joining BRICS. We see Egypt joining BRICS, and Egypt is now also taking steps to um, seek industrialization. It's uh, opening an industry park with Russia. It's got many contacts with China, all of these things. Um, and one also gets the sense that lots of young people in the Middle East, increasingly well-educated, they've got tremendous entrepreneurial flair. You see that in London, where we have a lot of people from the Middle East here. So do you sense that it's all finally coming together, that things are changing, that the Arab states are starting to think for themselves at last, rather than take, you know, the take their cue from Washington and London, Paris, and those sorts of places. I mean, you know, you're in the Middle East now. So. Yeah, it's a, so I'm in, I'm in Dubai in the Emirates. Mm -hmm. It it is, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, uh, an extraordinarily complex region. Uh, it is fair to say it really has been an extraordinarily complex region for as long as we have history. Uh, because it really, it, and it's the place where history was invented, after all. I think Herodotus is uh, the histories, which tells the uh, war of the Persians versus the Greeks, gives us a flavor of things that went on for a very long time afterwards. So uh, the Middle East is in the middle. Uh, it's in the middle of uh, lots of different cultures, uh, the Turkish world, uh, the Arab world, the African world, uh, the Western world, which became the imperial powers uh, centuries ago, uh, the Russian world. So th it's an extremely complex region. It's, of course, in the world of uh, the three uh, great monotheistic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, uh, and Islam. Uh, it is a uh, divided between the oil haves and the oil have nots. Uh, it is uh, uh, the region probably that uh, was, in a way, it's a little strange to say, but I'm going to say it, uh, kind of the epicenter of uh, European imperialism. Of course, Europe imperialized Africa, uh, it imperialized India, uh, Southeast Asia, but the Middle East was viewed so strategically, uh, the Suez Canal, uh, Britain's uh, uh, transport link to the jewel of, uh, of the British Empire to India. Uh, and then in the 20th century, when Churchill converted uh, the British Navy from coal to oil, suddenly uh, the oil of the Middle East was strategically absolutely central, and it has basically remained almost that way uh, until very, very recently. So you add it all up, it's been, you know, what's said about, uh, uh, about the Versailles Treaty, that it was the peace to end all peace. Uh, it created so many more wars, 
But one thing it did was put Britain uh, and France after uh, 1919 into the center of uh, imperialism for another another grand war, uh, after which the United States became the great Western imperial power. Uh, It created uh, Israel, which has been uh, the source of uh, repeated war, and endless turmoil starting it as a, as a British project uh, in the British mandate after World War One. Uh, so to say that they've uh, turned the corner on conflict would be premature because this is a region not only with internal divisions, but with so much mischief coming from the outside and we have the uh, American fleet, you know, uh, in the in the in the Persian Gulf again, uh, in in the Eastern Mediterranean again. This is a playground of great powers that have created such a mess over the past century, but really centuries, that you can't declare uh, that this is solved. But I think the key, always in these circumstances, is to understand it could be solved. There's nothing fundamental that prevents solutions. And exhibit, I'll give you three exhibits to that. One is the Saudi-Iranian rapprochement, the Sunni-Shia rapprochement. Oh, you, you listen to any lecture at Harvard, they would have told you completely impossible. Uh, any, any, uh, any, any think tank in London or the United States, completely impossible. China pulled it off because what was impossible? To my mind, I recently went uh, from Tehran to Riyadh. The, the problems are so shared. I wanted them to work together at the time. It was impossible, but now it's possible. So that's uh, this is uh, one uh, point uh, of showing how this uh, resolution can occur. Today, or I think it was yesterday, but the news today, who shows up in Greece? Erdogan. Erdogan goes to meet uh, his uh, Greek counterpart. Wonderful. You know, the Greeks and the Turks have been at each other's necks basically since the Greek War of Independence that you know very well of the 1820s. And Erdogan shows up. Phenomenal. I love Greece. I love Turkey. I love going to both. And I would I think the rapprochement, if it is that, would be phenomenally smart for both countries and both centers of civilization, after all. Uh, it's uh, it, it, there's such an amazing fit. And uh, I was going to give a, a third. Yes, a third point. Now, this is actually absolutely crucial because we have an ongoing genocide taking place in Gaza right now. Israel is mass killing Gazans with the most vulgar, disgusting statements of intent coming from the from the Israeli political leaders. It's absolutely criminal in, in the literal international law sense what's going on. But what do the Arab leaders say and what do the Arab Islamic leaders say when they meet, when they met recently in Riyadh, they said, we could have peace with Israel, actually straightforwardly establish a state of Palestine, according to all the UN Security Council resolutions, 
and Palestine and Israel live side by side in peace. And then we normalize our relations with Israel. Is that crazy to believe? No, it's absolutely possible. What stops it? Zealots. On the Israeli side, the zealots who are, are well represented in this terrible right-wing government of Netanyahu that believe in what they call greater Israel, which means no Palestinian state nearby uh, in Palestinian land, by the way, despite resolutions of the UN Security Council that go back to Resolution 242 in 1967. So you could have, you really could have Israel in peace. You could have the region in peace between the Sunnis and the Shias, between uh, uh, Turkey uh, and, and, uh, and Greece. Uh, the West could actually behave itself for the first time in a century and, and not be so mischievous uh, in the region. And you could actually see this region as a region with, the, of course, as you say, tremendous talent, young people, gobs of money because they have the largest sovereign wealth funds. And the Saudis are trying to build cutting edge technologies, the largest solar fields in the world. They want to shift out of hydrocarbons if there's a way to do it peacefully, cooperatively. And so we have all the reason to help make this work. But remember, you know, the, the United States absolutely did so much damage to this by taking Arab nationalism and considering it the great threat and aiming to break it. Nasser could have been a partner with, uh, with the world and with the West in modernization going back to the 1950s. The United States had the idea in its hegemonic worldview that any legitimate popular government that is not under our thumb is a potential partner of the Soviet Union. So we can only abide by puppet regimes. This was the real mentality. So Nasser becomes an enemy. They made him an enemy. And this broke Arab nationalism. And it was a goal of the United States, divide et impera, divide and conquer, learn from the British very well. And it prevented this region from getting together. And so you ask, could it? Of course it could. Should it? My God, no question. We're not far from it, but instead we're in a horrific war and the United States are playing as always, not just the spoiler, by the way, but the complete enabler. Every bomb, I maybe not every bomb, but just about every bomb falling on Gaza is an American-made bomb. And this is uh, shocking, disgusting, and uh, a part of the reason why the region doesn't get out of this mess. John Kirby actually gave a speech yesterday when he argued that no other country has done more to alleviate the suffering from Gazans than the United States. So it was quite a remarkable statement. But uh, but, but I, I want to suggest that perhaps the 
that the problem is alliance systems because uh, classical realists since Morgenthau always argued that peacetime alliances is really uh, a source of huge uh, instability because uh, we see if you have a military power like the United States trying to organize a region, you would always have the incentives, uh, again, in the imperial logic of divide and conquer. So you see in all continents of the world, if you have a, a conflict with China, for example, whenever there's division between China and India, this is a benefit because you can weaken the Chinese and the Indians will become more reliant on the on the Americans. You've seen that now in Europe as well. As soon as we had this war now with the Russians, we Europe is completely now subordinated to the United States. Meanwhile, the Russians, at least the uh, objective was to weaken Russia. But we also see the same logic in the Middle East, of course. The more conflict you have between the Arabs and the Iranians, the more loyal the Arabs will be to America and the more you know you can weaken the Iranians. But uh, uh, but with, with the Chinese, uh, given that they're not really a military power in the same sense and they don't have any peacetime alliances, uh, formal alliances, they're... There seems to be more of a different systemic incentives from pursuing economic connectivity because when the Chinese enter the Arab states, they're very careful also to reach out to the Iranians. So doing the exact opposite, make sure you don't pit them against each other because then China would have to choose. And I thought the same now with Putin going down to Middle East, you know, he goes to Saudi Arabia, UAE, and at the same time, you know, he books an appointment with the Iranian president to come to Moscow just to make sure, you know, we're not forming alliances here. Like we, we don't want to choose one and the cost will be to alienate the other. So is this the, would you contrast this economic connectivity of organizing a region versus the military, militarized alliance system? Or how, how would you, like, well, why, why is China so different uh, in this region, for example, from the United States? So, uh, you know, there are, there are uh, maybe four theories of uh, international relations uh, that uh, are are debated, or we in the West debate three, but I'm going to add a fourth. <clears throat> so our dear friend, John Mearsheimer, who's really a wonderful person and, and a, a great political scientist, uh, has the theory of, that he calls offensive realism, uh, which is that uh, states compete. It's a dangerous world out there. Everybody senses danger. It's a fight for survival. Uh, and therefore, you're constantly uh, pushing against the others and you're constantly yearning for uh, hegemony uh, because uh, being the hegemon is the only safe place in the world after all. So you're always uh, greatly in danger. Uh, and that's a world of conflict. And John Mearsheimer's most famous book uh, is uh, called The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. And he says, it's a tragedy. And I say, John, you can't write a book that just ends in tragedy. You have to give a solution. And he says, Jeff, it's a tragedy. And I say, no, you can't accept a tragedy because especially in a nuclear age, we can't accept that. We're going to blow ourselves to smithereens on your theory. Jeff, it's a tragedy. Okay, that's my uh, ongoing debate with my dear friend, John Mearsheimer. Then there's a... a a theory that I would ascribe to uh, the recently deceased Henry Kissinger, uh, which is a balance of power, that you don't need endless struggle. You need to create uh, and structure a balance. The balance uh, can be alliances, but it's better if it's a kind of concert of Europe where the major powers agree, don't push too hard against each other. And this is why Kissinger was rightly, wisely 
uh, among the, the, the big poobahs of foreign policy against NATO enlargement to Ukraine. Actually, I would say all experienced diplomats were was a bunch of foolish politicians like Biden and others that push for it. But Kissinger says, don't rock the boat, make a concert of big powers. And of course, his model was the concert of Europe after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815 and the structuring together of a system in Europe in which the major powers preserved the peace under Metternich and then later under Bismarck. There were some skirmishes uh, in Europe, more than skirmishes, German reunification, Italian reunification, the Crimean War, which was an imperialist war uh, by Britain and France against Russia. But by and large, the 19th century didn't have a world war between the Napoleonic Wars and, and World War I. So that was the balance of uh, power theory that Kissinger tried to put into play. The interesting thing about balance of power, though, is that it becomes imbalanced uh, because uh, it, if you had a static substrate of relative economic size and technology, you probably could fashion a predictable geopolitical and military equilibrium. But power changes. And it was, of course, the rise of Germany that changed the balance of power in Europe at the end of the 19th century. And this is absolutely uh, important to understand. To keep the balance of power in Europe required tremendous prudence and wisdom. And Bismarck had that. Bismarck was a geopolitical genius. <clears throat> and he was thrown out when the old Kaiser died and the young kid came in and the young kid got it into his head that he was going to compete with Britain for naval supremacy. And Bismarck said, why will we do that? Bismarck was dismissed. And there was the end of the balance of power because it required genius to hold it together. And the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II, famously said to Bismarck, what are we going to do if the British show up on our shores? And Bismarck famously said, well, Kaiser, we'll have them arrested. Uh, in other words, we don't need to build a world-class Navy. We just need to, you know, bide our, 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 own, uh, our own time. Things will be fine. But Wilhelm II didn't believe it, got into an arms race with Britain, alliances and all the rest, and eventually World War I broke out. So that's the second theory. My theory is, why don't we all get along? You know, that's my theory. I'm, I'm an economist. I learned from Adam Smith that uh, a world market is better than uh, protected national markets, that global trade is better than mercantilism. And uh, kind of from Immanuel Kant uh, in his famous essay on perpetual peace in 1795, that that actually a, a, a set of uh, republics uh, that trade with each other and act peacefully with each other is the kind of world that we want. Now, I devote my life to that. I work with the UN on countless matters and, and donate my time to the UN because I believe we could fashion uh, an international framework of law uh, in which countries could grow, in which China's success would not 
be viewed or acted upon as a threat by the United States because it's no such thing at all. Uh, in which uh, the United States could not unilaterally sanction Russia or grab foreign exchange reserves because it's against international law, which, by the way, it is uh, against international law, which the U.S. happens to completely ignore. So my theory is that cooperation is so important that we could actually find our way to achieve it. It's a long story, but it's not impossible to cooperate. Of course, there are cheaters uh, that uh, try to take advantage of, of softies and so forth and uh, abuse of privileges, but we really could have an international system of law. The United States is the least multilateral country among all major economies. I've just done a study looking at the number of times the U.S. violates international law, basically. And it's the most of any country because it's all unilateralism. That's being, you know, the would-be hegemonic power, not abiding by the views of the rest of the international system. But that's what I would aim for. And I don't think it's naive. I think it's vital for survival, especially because we have to grapple with mass environmental crises and uh, horrible uh, depletion of uh, our oceans and pollution and many other things that we need to deal with together through a cooperative approach. Now, I said there's a fourth approach. This is arguable, but I think Chinese statecraft really is different. Uh, and it's fascinating to me. Uh, and I've just been reading some Chinese philosophers who say, you know, we really think about the world order in a different way, in a truly Confucian way. Confucius's greatest, the greatest virtue for Confucius was orderliness, was harmony. You hear that word repeatedly. It's really a Chinese, very deep idea. And China is very different from Europe, which created our international system, because in Europe, the Roman Empire fell in 476 AD, and it never came together again. Europe remained fragmented after the fall of the Western Roman Empire until today. And you could say the European Union is the, the attempt to put something unified together. China has a completely different history. Uh, China unified in 221 BC. And by and large, with episodes of breakdown that lasted decades, not centuries, China has remained a unified state. So China went through the, the Han Dynasty and the uh, Tang and Song and Yuan and Ming and Qing, but as unified as a unified state. So China doesn't have that sense of fragmentation. The same way. Of course, it always faced invaders from the north, the nomadic invaders. But this is quite different and internal rebellions. But China has the idea we're unified. Our western border is the Himalayas. Okay. Our southern border is the tropical rainforest border. Our uh, eastern border is uh, the great ocean. Our northern border is the steppe region, uh, the dryland region. Yes, we keep getting some invasions uh, across that way, but we are a unified state and we, our statecraft is that we want unity across the Indian Ocean, across the South China Sea. 
China never invaded Japan once, not even once in 2000 years, except when China was ruled briefly by the Mongols and the Mongols tried two failed invasions, defeated each time by a typhoon, which became called the Kamikaze Winds. But the point I'm making is that in the West, it's fighting all the time. How many years were France and Britain at war across the English Channel? Well, most of a millennium. And compare that with China and Japan. No wars, no wars. And two invasions, I think it's 1274 and 1281, if I remember correctly, but I may have the decade off by one decade. And then at the end of the 16th century, a kind of crazy shogun of Japan decided that he would invade China. He ended up getting defeated in Korea, in the Korean Peninsula. But other than that, the two didn't fight. And here's what's fascinating. At the end of the 19th century, Japan industrialized first. And then Japan, starting after it it had its uh, so-called Meiji Restoration in uh, 1868, it went into hypercharged industrialization, absolutely remarkable. And all subsequent East Asian miracles really follow the uh, Meiji Restoration model. But without digressing, at the end of the 19th century, Japan was the single industrial power of Asia. And Japan literally self-consciously said, okay, we have joined the European club. Now we can be an imperial power. So Japan launches the Sino-Japanese War or the Japanese Sino War of uh, 1895. Uh, That's when uh, it gains control of uh, Taiwan as a colony and its first control over the Korean Peninsula, which would come a a little bit later as a full colony. And the the Chinese are dumbfounded by this. You know, the top diplomats of the Japanese and the Chinese were friends. And the Chinese actually plaintively look at the Japanese saying, what are you doing? You know, the, the, the Europeans are coming to attack us and you're, you're behaving like them. And the Japanese say, oh, so sorry. Yes, we are Japanese, but now we're part of their club. And so the Japanese become European imperialists, European style imperialists, I should say, just to be clear. And the, the Chinese never became that in their history. China never made overseas transoceanic empires. You could argue, okay, it expanded its landmass up to the steppe region, up to the Himalayas, down to the tropical rainforest, to the East Coast. But basically, beyond that, it never tried to conquer overseas colonies. It never had them. So the argument of this fourth approach is that, that China really thinks differently about uh, uh, about geopolitics. John Mearsheimer, our dear friend, would say, no, 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 no. This is structural. China will become like the United States. It will compete for uh, hegemonic status. But look at what China says every day 
If you go to the Chinese foreign ministry website, almost every week there's some brilliant, uh, ingenious report, including about American hegemony, including about uh, China's development initiative, its global strategic initiative, its global civilizations initiative, and so forth. China says no hegemony. We don't want hegemony. We want harmony. We want to live under the UN Charter. And the United States says, oh, oh, that's, you know, they want to take us over. And China says, no, no, we don't want that. We just want harmony. We can't imagine another country behaving in a non-European imperial way. But I think it's actually true unless we so damn provoke China into mm-hmm. terrible behavior. China absolutely, in my opinion, wants cooperation and we should meet it there and cooperate in that way. I mean, I'm not a China expert at all, but um, I used to to read a lot of Chinese uh, philosophy and some literature, and I agree. One of the interesting things about Chinese literature and Chinese painting, in which, by the way, I am, I I mean, I I have a great fondness for Chinese painting, is that depictions, depictions of war are absent from it. It's all about it's all about harmony, and it is all about peace. It's one of the things that attracts me to it. Yeah, like, this is so true. What a great observation! I've never uh, made it or heard it, but it's absolutely true. You don't see war pictures and conquest pictures. I just was in uh, Chinese museums recently, and it's absolutely correct what you say. And I and I never thought about it, but it's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. If I can just go back to the Middle East, because, of course, this is a part of the... I'm glad you brought in Greece, by the way, because, of course, Greece is not just close to the Middle East, but for much of our history, in a kind of a sense, we were part of the Middle East. So it's a region which we have a certain... what We have we feel about it differently than I think Europeans, other Europeans do. And one of the things I would say about the Middle East is there's never been any developed system of international relations in the Middle East. And there's been many wars and fights and battles going back, you know, centuries, well into the Middle Ages. The reality is underlying all of that, all of these various communities in the Middle East, Greeks, Arabs, Turks, Iranians, Druze, Shia, Sunni, we all nonetheless somehow managed and to a great extent still manage despite everything, to get along with each other. We always somehow manage to coexist. At least that was the case until the Europeans came. And uh, that's why in the Middle East, everybody everybody is still there, or at least was there. So, of course, you had the Assyrians. Most people don't know that the Assyrians still exist, but they did and do. You have the Druze. You have all of these little communities. The it's uh, true, ex- right? And one of the things that never stopped, and you, I, you know, I know this again from Greek medieval literature, because of course we were the Christian Empire. We were against the Caliphate. We had tremendous respect for each other. It's there in our folk poetry from that period. Uh, the soldiers used to meet and they used to fight and then they used to have uh, uh, friendships and all kinds of things of this kind. One of the things that never stopped 
was trade. Trade was continuous. It was never interrupted. If you went to the bazaars in Cairo, for example, which was the economic center, and I believe the bazaar, I've never seen it, but I believe the bazaar in Cairo is still a pretty vibrant. I, I, I know it very well, it, actually. It, 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 it all sort of threaded together. And there was never any question of ending all of that. And somehow that helped us all to get along with each other. What happened? Was no, it's absolutely right. And remember, Odessa was a Greek city to a very oh, large extent. Uh, and uh, and the trading was, uh, you know, Greek traders, of course, Armenian traders, Jewish traders. Uh, these networks of trade were extensive. And you're absolutely correct that uh, everybody knows each other extremely well. The Turks and the Greeks, of course, they know each other. Uh, the... Uh, Everybody knows each other. And I, I was uh, actually just had the pleasure of uh, having a long discussion with uh, the Orthodox uh, Patriarch of Antioch, uh, which goes back uh, to, I don't remember whether it's the first century AD or the second century AD. But he's a Christian patriarch in Damascus. Uh, in an Arab-made-speaking community, for heaven's sake, this is 2,000 years. And, of course, we were discussing exactly this wonderful mix of local cultures in Syria. And Barack Obama sends in the CIA in 2012 to overthrow Assad, lights the match, blows up the place, not knowing anything, anything about Syria, about its history, about its culture, about its diversity, just lighting the match. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing uh, and it, it's really worth contemplating. Uh, I can think of three, let's consider three great empires of uh, this region. Uh, first, the Persian Empire, going back to uh, the Ashamenid uh, uh, Empire of Cyrus the Great, uh, who, by the way, saved the Jewish people. He allowed the exiles from uh, Babylonia to return to Jerusalem. Uh, and the idea of the, that Iran and the United and Israel are natural enemies is, uh, is fatuous, <laughs> given that uh, the, the actual history of the two goes back to uh, uh, the, the uh, 6th century BC, close relations. But what I was going to say about the Persians, they were very clever. They allowed local rule, local religions, uh, and a huge diversity. And so actually the, the Jewish second uh, temple period uh, in, uh, in today's Israel, but uh, back in the fourth and third century was was under uh, the suzerainty of, uh, of Persia uh, because it was a very tolerant system. Then came Alexander the Great's uh, conquests uh, between 331 and 323 BC. And of course he reached <laughs> he reached India, created uh, the Hellenistic empires, but his genius, even you know as, as this kid, although he had the greatest teacher, in history, in my view, Aristotle, uh, but uh, Alexander knew, take local traditions, don't try to impose things, uh, let things be. And so the Hellenistic kingdoms, of course, brought 
wonderful Greek culture, Greek language, Greek knowledge, Greek wisdom, but also with a lot of local, uh, local tolerance and incredible diversity. And the Ottomans, you know, I don't know, as a Greek, you may have a, a bit more jaundiced view of the Ottomans than I do. I rather like the Ottomans in a lot of ways. But they had, of course, multiple minority communities who lived peacefully. Uh, that is why uh, the uh, His All Holiness, uh, the Greek Orthodox uh, Patriarch Bartholomew, uh, lives in uh, in uh, Istanbul, Constantinople, uh, and uh, keeps his uh, his throne uh, as uh, the Patriarch of. Uh, of uh, Greek Orthodoxy, uh, or the all-ecumenical patriarch, uh, I should say, because the Ottomans kept all sorts of communities uh, within the Ottoman Empire. And you can see these minority communities till today, local religion, local language, local cultures. It's quite wonderful. And that, I would say, is your point, that lots of wars, but actually the fact that the diversity has remained for two millennia plus means that this wasn't mass extinctions, genocides, uh, attempts to impose uh, one faith or one religion. Uh, and the Jewish community in today's modern Iran was not forced out by the Iranians, it was pulled out by the Zionist movement of Israel, which tried to bring everyone to Israel and depleted all of these ancient, long-standing, traditional Jewish communities. And I, I find that very, very sad, actually, because uh, that diversity is, uh, is, is an incredible cultural strength, but also an economic strength because of the trading, uh, the trading systems. And and that brings me to the point about Israel, because, of course, Israel can become a part of this system. As I said, a system where everybody learns to live with everybody else. Tensions exist. And, of course, the point is that in the modern world, the kind of tensions that used to exist in the Middle East, the, the wars, which are usually wars between local dynasties, they're not <coughs> exactly the same as European wars if you know your medieval history of this part of the world well. Um, that period of war anyway is obsolete, but the trade is not. And um, I myself, and I, I, you know, I, I was very, very impressed by that meeting in Riyadh. Actually, I was too. I, I, I mean, everybody came together. Erdogan was there, Assad was there, the uh, Saudis were there, the everybody was there, and they were all talking. The Iranians were there, and they were all talking together, and they were all talking together as a region, as a, a, a place where, and they were coming up with sophisticated political points, and. I have to say, I felt that this does provide a real opening and a future, both for a political settlement of this crisis, which in my opinion is the ultimate or crisis behind all the others in the Middle East, 
and also for the potential economic and social development of this region. If they can all come together and work together and almost just about there doing it, then all of these synergies that do exist in the Middle East can finally start coming together and then we could start to think of the Middle East in a completely different way. It is absolutely the case and the utter tragedy of what's happening right now beyond the human disaster that Israel is causing is that there is a clear path to peace. No question about it. The Israeli line, which I've heard for more than 50 years, there's no one to talk to on the other side, is such BS. There's no other way to put it because the other side keeps saying, we want peace, we want normal relations, but you have to respect the fact that there are the Palestinian people who have political rights that need to be observed. It's really as simple as that. And when you look at this, and it's, uh, it, it is the terrible frustration, what's stopping that in Israel? What's stopping that is two different groups. One uh, that happens to be in power right now, but there really is a, a group of zealots who believe as a matter of theology that all the land is promised to the Jews and it's in the book of Joshua uh, and this is ours, no matter who happens to be there. And, you know, it's, it's a completely unacceptable view an extraordinarily dangerous one. It is not the majority view in Israel, but it is a powerful view. And the way Israeli politics works, which is to give added weight to small groups that tip the balance to uh, majorities in multi-party coalitions, they have a loud voice. And some of these people like Smotrich in the uh, cabinet, who's the finance minister, are vulgar and destroying Israel uh, because of uh, their, uh, well, a kind of genocidal intent, actually. Uh, so that's one group. The other group says, no, for security, we dare not risk making peace. And the stupid thing that they did, of course, I mean, but it was very premeditated and it played games with the first group and got won their support politically was the settlements process after the uh, 1967 war uh, when the secularists said, you know, we don't trust uh, Palestinians to have a state, so we're going to put Israeli settlements in Palestinian territory. And this was to the famous expression back in 1970 was to, to put facts on the ground. And now there are more than 400,000 uh, Israeli settlers in the West Bank, and there are another 200 to 250,000 in East Jerusalem. And it's facts that have made peace so much harder to achieve. But the main point, from my point of view, is these settlements are illegal. They have been declared illegal repeatedly by the Security Council. 
And so I want the Security Council to vote a two-state solution along the 4th of June 1967 borders, like it has declared for more than 50 years, and get on with peace. And Israel would find that it has plenty of neighbors to do business with, to have peaceful relations with, to have tourism with, and every other thing. But they need to stop the zealots who don't see this this way, and they need to have some some self-understanding that the other side has been talking about peace for decades. Israelis haven't wanted to hear it. And the United States has uh, basically, uh, you know, unconditionally backed Israel in, until today, let's be clear, you know, whatever Blinken and others are saying about protecting civilians is, is, is a total sham because it's American bombs dropping on Gaza every day right now. So this is not Americans protecting anything. They know perfectly well what they're doing. And that brings us back to the U.S. side and uh, and also to Britain and the European imperial side, there is something about the evangelical religious view that has said we can control these things. Uh, and uh, it's it's a little less tolerant. Uh, the fundamentalist evangelical Christian view in the United States, which is probably the most pro-Zionist part of uh, American politics, okay, at least alongside the Jewish community. But that view is, again, a kind of God-given, we have the right to rule view. And that is not what peaceful coexistence is about. Peaceful coexistence is about mutual respect, not the belief uh, that one is uh, the chosen one to rule in a particular place or to rule every place. I, I wanted to uh, uh, shift a bit uh, out of the middle, if this is, is this okay, but um, still it's an economic question, I guess, because a big thing happening now this week, of course, was the the, the, the Chinese uh, meeting with the EU. I think this was the first time they really met since the pandemic. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it, it kind of had the same issues where we... Because uh, we spoke previously about the mindset in the United States, but it's a similar challenge now in Europe. I feel because uh, globalization is turning out very differently than many of the EU leaders suggested. It was supposed to be one which was Western centric, and uh, of course now uh, the key challenge or or concern, I guess, from from Brussels would be that uh, the Europeans are becoming. Uh, very dependent on China, but China not so much dependent on Europe. Uh, so this asymmetry is something that's uh, spooking, I think, the, the Europeans. So the key language you now hear from the EU would be de-risking, decoupling. Uh, but again, this is a dilemma for the Europeans, because if the Europeans would sever themselves from China, sever themselves from Chinese technologies and resources, like they cut themselves off Russian resources, it would make the European less economic uh, competitive, uh, less prosperous, and also their dependence then would increase on the United States, which would effectively make them more politically obedient. So this is not a good option. Uh, but on the other side, uh, if they accept more uh, economic connectivity with China, the concern is that temp the, the dependence would uh, grow. So they, they have been looking for ways out. Uh, well, one of them would be, hey, how about we 
we put some sanctions on China where it fits us. Uh, but then, of course, uh, the Europeans are very, uh, very offended when the Chinese retaliate because this is uh, supposed to be a one-way tool. Uh, so, you know, they, they, try, they try to frame it in human rights because this is a good way of uh, legitimizing one-sided sanctions. But again, the Chinese doesn't appear to want to have anything to do with it. The Europeans, for example, cite the uh, treatment of Uyghurs. But uh, at the same time, you know, von der Leyen doesn't want to even uh, call for ceasefire when the Israelis are, you know, carpet bombing uh, Gaza. So this doesn't really work. They're also trying to blame China for supporting Russia, even though, of course, the Europeans had a lot to do with provoking this war and now also sending all these weapons. So uh, so China pretty much took the same position as the majority of the world population, which was, you know, uh, not supporting Russia's invasion, but also not supporting NATO's proxy war. Anyways, my, 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 my point is, or questions, I guess, would be, how, how do you see this? Uh, how would Europe uh, overcome this dilemma uh, of, uh, you know, not wanting to become too dependent on China? Because, uh, well, for example, to look at the electric car market, that you know, we the Europeans simply can't compete with the Chinese. If the Chinese cars are coming here, electric cars especially, uh, then there's no room for the uh, for the European market because on a high quality, low cost Chinese. Uh, cars versus the lower quality, higher priced European ones. The you know the, the, the Europe would deindustrialize uh, simply because Europe's no longer competitive. Uh, but again, going against the Chinese is also not a great solution. So, uh, how, well, what would your your advice be to the Europeans? Uh, ideally, yeah, that would have become before this meeting. <laughs> yeah, first, uh, um, I, I don't think Europe or the United States uh, can ever again talk about human rights the way they do. You know, this uh, claim Xinjiang is a genocide, which was absurd, completely fatuous to begin with, just a debating point or talking point. And then when a real genocide is taking place, they don't do anything. It's right before our eyes. Mass slaughter, mass, uh, uh, mass uh, killings, uh, mass ethnic cleansing, and they suck their thumbs. They don't do anything. So all of these arguments uh, that have been used are phony geopolitical narrative arguments. They're games. They're not real. And uh, people may, some people may think they're making real arguments, but they should understand that the governments are making phony arguments. And I took this on with the U.S. State Department when it talked about a genocide in Xinjiang without providing even one paragraph of backup, by the way, is just games. So they should attend to the genocide that they're a party to, which is the one taking place in Gaza right now, and get this war stopped immediately. Now, when it comes to uh, China, basically what's happening is that van der Leyen is just uh, following U.S. instructions. I don't even think that this is a European view. This is the American view fallen behind uh, your your leader. Uh, and uh, I blame Europe for constantly falling behind, falling in behind the United States because it's falling further and further behind by doing so. It's just absolute. Look at the trap that the U.S. got Europe into vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Complete trap. Of course, the Europeans are not completely innocent of this. They watched the overthrow of Yanukovych. They went along with it. Why doesn't a and the European leaders privately said things to me. Oh, yes, 
you're right, it's NATO. And then they say the opposite the next day. So I've heard the the hypocrisy directly to me. I mean, to me, they tell me one thing. They say something publicly the next day. They're just following the U.S. Look, some one day the United States decided Huawei uh, is, uh, uh, is, is an enemy. Now, why? To my mind, because if it's a U.S. system, they can spy on me. But if it's a Chinese system, they can't spy on me so easily. So I, I trust Huawei equipment for my privacy more than I trust American equipment for sure. Because I know what Ed Snowden explained to me, by the way, in a eight-hour face-to-face discussion once about what what my own government's doing to me. So, but as soon as the U.S. said it, oh, the Europeans have to cut out Huawei everywhere. You know, they just follow the U.S. lead. And van der Leyen's not the most clever person I've ever seen. It's not like there really are some original ideas there. Uh, and European foreign policy is shambolic right now. And Germany, sad to say, has uh, you know, really nobody has done more damage uh, in peacetime to the German economy than the Greens uh, and Schultz letting them do it. Uh, and this is all very sad. So my advice to the Europeans, trade with China, keep good relations with China, improve your vehicles, of course. Don't be late. But Europe's pretty clever. Europeans like a good quality of life, and they have it. Europe has the highest quality of life on the planet, the shortest working hours, the highest living standards, the longest vacation time, the longest life expectancy. The Chinese work a lot longer hours, a lot harder, and so on. That's part of the trade-off. But I think Europe gets its high living standards by being clever, well-educated, technologically sophisticated. And yes, Europe should have a more strategic uh, view. It it fell behind, you know, look, Europe makes the, the leading uh, advanced chips in the world, but it's all under U.S. control. Why doesn't Europe have uh, it, its own control over ASML chip making capacity? No, the U.S. dictates everything. This is Europe's mistake right now. Europe's interest is not U.S. hegemony. Europe's interest is a peaceful, sustainable world and meeting China literally halfway on the Eurasian continent. Mm -hmm. If Europe had a good uh, investment program, uh, it would be investing fast rail out to somewhere in central Russia or out to Samarkand. Uh, and uh, China would be investing uh, in fast rail uh, westward, and we would meet in the middle and celebrate the 21st century Silk Road, which, after all, is the whole idea. of, uh, And that would bring prosperity to everybody. China is not going to invade Europe. China is not a threat to Europe, period. Uh, I completely agree. I mean, the, the idea that trade is a geopolitical threat because that's what it amounts to that yeah. trading with china is somehow uh, uh, conjuring up some kind of geopolitical threat the trading russia was a geopolitical threat it, it is so completely misconceived it is so profoundly wrong 
And you could see that what's happening is that some people, it just go back to what you were saying about the dollar at the start of the program. Some people want to use these trade instruments as geopolitical instruments themselves. By the and way, this is, yep, this is exactly Jake Sullivan's sophomoric idea. And it, it's sophomoric in the sense that you would expect to read it in a sophomore essay, but they're actually putting it into policy in the U.S. that we need to weaponize trade, we need to weaponize the dollar. He wrote about this in the campaign in 2020. I, I, I thought it was a lousy article. I couldn't imagine it would become actual American policy. But the thing that I could never imagine is that the Europeans would stop thinking like they have and just follow along with the U.S. And this, this is really the big yeah. mistake. Yeah. Uh, Pro Professor Sachs, I, I, we've had you for, it's been absolutely phenomenal program. We've talked about China and the Middle East and Europe. But I, I think because we've come back, we've pivoted back to Eurasia, um, perhaps I'm going to suggest that we finish. Perhaps, Glenn, you've got something to say about Eurasia because this is your, uh, this is something that you've been studying, following very closely. You just met Professor Sachs talked about the Chinese and the Europeans building their railway lines and meeting. Well, why could we not do that? Isn't that exactly what was offered? And wouldn't it have been a great thing if it had happened? And wasn't what wasn't that what? Putin was advising and saying we should do. And isn't that essentially what Xi Jinping is telling us the Europeans to do? So uh, over to you, Glenn. No, I, uh, well, uh, I don't really have uh, <clears throat> any much more to add, uh, but I was uh, uh, thinking the same, that it seems uh, a lot of our policies in this, you know, greater Eurasian space from the Atlantic to the Pacific is uh, very contradictory because we're always very worried that, uh, you know, China's going to be this uh, central power which everyone will be dependent on. But at the same time, you know, we're sanctioning the, the Russians, so the Russians become more reliant on China. We're going after the Iranians, so the Iranians are going more to China. So it, it seems like uh, the, the solution are concerned that the world, uh, all roads will go to China could be solved by ending a lot of this uh, sanctions war because uh, in, in this way, you know, the Iranians have the same interest. They want to diversify their economic connectivity. They don't want to put all their eggs in one basket where they could be taken advantage of. They want to, you know, connect with Europe. They want to connect with Russia. They want to connect with China. And this is, uh, I think, a lot of what you see across this Eurasian space. It's a, it's about uh, decentralizing and, and diversifying to prevent uh, everything from being decided from one center, which allows it to be used as a political weapon, which allows uh, economic connectivity, which should be a source of peace, to again become a uh, economic weapon. So I think... Uh, and and uh, maybe maybe we could end with one, just one more terrible example of this that is that shows all that's wrong and all that could be right. Uh, and that is uh, uh, Italy just uh, renounced... Uh, participation in the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is quite fascinating because Italy uh, back in 2019 knew that trade with China is a good thing for Italy because the Chinese love Italian brands and the Italians have stylish brands and the, and the Chinese love it. And it brings a lot of income, a lot of wealth to Italy. 
Uh, and so Italy signed up, as it should, to be part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, uh, just a couple of months ago, Prime Minister Maloney was called to Washington and was told by Biden, you've got to get out of this. And dutifully, uh, Italy has told the Chinese, we are leaving the Belt and Road Initiative. And then we still want trade with China. We don't want to be misunderstood and so forth. Uh, but they left. Why did they leave? Not because even intrinsic fear of China, not because it was hurting the Italian economy, not because Italy lacked things to sell to China. No, they left for one simple reason. The United States told them to do so. Professor Sachs, on that bleak note, but, you know, there's been said a lot of things that give rise to hope in this program so let's and th those are the big I things agree. actually <laughs> so let, let, let's not let's not forget that but on, on on that rather sour note maybe but but always remembering the positive and good things um i suggest that maybe this is the a good place to stop our program it's been a wonderful one and um i think you're a, a very interesting place at the moment du dubai where all sorts of exciting things are happening and the Arabian Peninsula looks like it's becoming a very exciting place altogether with, with lots of things going on in Saudi Arabia, which are, um, sound very exciting and dynamic indeed. Great to be with you. Yeah, Thank thanks you. as well for being so yeah, generous with your time. Of Thank course. You. Always great to be with you guys. Thanks. <laughs>